1: Hello, welcome to the next episode of No Really, I'm Fine. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And for those of you who've listened to previous episodes, we are just blown away by the positive response the podcast is getting. We're in the top 30 in the UK iTunes chart, which is just incredible. Getting lots of good reviews, which is ace. Uh, If you do want to do us a favour and leave us a review, you can do so on iTunes and we would really appreciate it. So thank you to those who have and yeah. Please do. So today I am joined by Michael. Hello. Just me and Michael this week as Gemma is on holiday, which is nice.
2: Just having a nice rest. Just have a, she, yeah, she's in Scotland, isn't she? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think she's celebrating her first anniversary with her partner. Oh, that's Which is nice. cute. So another special episode for you guys today. Michael will be chatting to Richard Innes. Now Richard is the head of commercial content for The Mirror. And he will be talking all things anger, alcohol and parenthood.
2: Yes, he will. It's it's really interesting because Richard Innes is like, I got to know Rich like August last year and he's one of those people who you could just talk to and not just talk to, but you could tell him your life story. He'd love Mm -hmm. it all and he'd just be so positive about it. But also he's so warm and kind. And I think in the podcast he said that apparently people describe him as like the BFG. (laughs)
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) And like, he's
2: like, you know, he's like, he is, he is, because he's, I think he's six foot four and like not, you know, he's he's so tall. But this is probably one of my favourite things we've done so far. I just, I think I only ask about three or four questions. And like, I'm sure, you know, as journalists, the last questions you have to Mm -hmm. ask the better because the means that the person's actually doing their job properly, You know, the interviewee yeah. is just so compelling and that is rich down to a T. So compelling. So here it is. So I'm joined with Richard Innes today, who um, I know is probably one of the nicest people I've ever met. In this company and <laughs> that I work in. Wow, and, that's um, very nice. Thank you. I, honestly, you honestly. Whenever I, I was like, let's go find Rich. He's such a nice person to go and say hello to. But um, uh, anyway, Rich Innes is head of commercial content for the Daily Mirror, the Daily Express, the Daily. Is this right? Am I saying this right? Yeah,
0: just about. Yeah, throw them all in. Throw them all. For, in. them all it makes in. Me sound you know, more important, you know. doesn't it? I like.
2: Yeah, that. just get them all in there. So <laughs> obviously a very important job because it helps make us money, I suppose. <laughs> but you know, if you tend say, look at it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I should I should point out that I was once a proper journalist before I sold my soul to the dark side. So I've still I've still got my journalistic cards somewhere.
2: So Rich is joining us today, and because he is not just working for the Daily Mirror and those titles, he is also the host of First Time Dads, which is a great podcast that we do. And if you are a parent, I would say going and listen to that. You can be a mum or a dad and listen to that. I have people who actually say to me they listen to you. You get you, uh, a lot of female listeners. Is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that is. I think um, I think a big part of that is just, I suppose, and I don't want to speak for women who are listening to our podcast, uh, but I would imagine just kind of wanting to know what it is that's going on in the in the minds of the men in their lives, really, the father of, of fathers of their children. I, I think um, we do just try and give a little bit of insight, try to speak quite openly about, <coughs> excuse me, try to speak quite openly about some of the issues you face as a father, as a parent, really. Um, and a lot of that does tie back in as you can imagine to mental health to, to bring us full circle um, because I think you know there's a lot of lot of issues we both mothers and fathers face in, face in terms of pressure in terms of frustration in terms of anger in terms of all sorts of things um, that can often take you by surprise a little bit as a parent I think
2: and yes and I just say we're not trying to shoehorn in a plug for first-time dads there is although you
0: know a little a, a, a plug is always welcome, Michael. Let's let's face it, if anyone wants to listen to our podcast, please go ahead. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the reason why we've got you on today is because since we first mentioned about doing the mental health podcast, you came to me and said, I really wanted to get involved with this. I really want, you know, I, as everyone in the world, we all suffer with mental health conditions and we all of them in our own way. And and, and you, if it's fair to say, uh, you've had your fair share of, is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I certainly don't want to to dramatise my experience, um, in the sense that the in comparison to what a lot of people have gone through, I don't think, um, I I haven't had any problems that I would describe as severe, but I have had issues, um, that that got to the point where I did feel I needed to get some help, um, and I and I did, I I, I spent some time in therapy, um, had some. Some problems that still sit with me now, but it's just a matter of trying to learn to cope and and make sure you're you're doing the best job you can.
2: What you said to me originally was that you you found that you had a lot of issues with with anger in in your adult life, and and knowing you now, I never would have realised that. I mean, I've only known you since about August last year. <laughs> I think I got to meet you, and and like ever since I've known you, it was just this this warm, friendly figure. But I'm guessing for you, that's not always been that way. Is that right?
0: Well, that's very kind of you to say so, but um. But yeah, funnily enough, a lot of people say that actually. I mean, I, I think my my sort of close friends and my family are aware that um, anger has has been something of a problem for me on on occasion. Um, but a lot of the people that maybe I know through work or kind of don't necessarily know me that well, um, I think yeah, maybe I'm. I've had people refer to me as the BFG before. You know, I'm I'm a big guy. I'm six foot five. I'm like you know, um, quite 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 a, a chunky sort of chap, and um, I've been referred to as a big friendly giant on a number of occasions. But um, anger has kind of sat with me for as long as I can remember really Um, I think for a very long time in my in my 20s I kind of just assumed it was and I imagine this happens with so many different people with so many different uh, kind of mental health experiences you just assume this is life you just assume that's kind of how it is for everybody Um, and I think it wasn't until maybe I got a little bit older and became and developed that kind of bit of self-awareness about how i was feeling how i was behaving and and looking at myself in a slightly different way and realized that maybe this isn't normal maybe this is slightly unusual um it's it's hard to explain really because my anger i'm not the sort of person you know i don't think i've ever been in a proper fist fight in my life you know i'm not when when i talk about anger i'm not talking about um smashing places up or <laughs> or doing anything anything violent i don't think i've ever had a a a sort of genuinely violent experience um but it's just something that's been eaten away at me for a long time inside, and where it where it all stems from um is obviously a very big and broad question, but um I got to a point some years ago where um my my now wife and I had had moved in together um things were getting very serious, and I was aware that I was losing my temper with her quite a lot, and again, not to any dramatic or worry well i say i suppose it was slightly worrying but not to any um, unpleasant degree, um, but things like snapping at her or raising my voice or doing things that I know I, did, you know, I knew I didn't want to be doing. Um, and there was, that was kind of coupled with day-to-day experiences where, for instance, being on my commute, um, again, I just assumed everyone that's ever on the London Underground. I mean, if anyone's listening to this um, outside of London, I'm sure everyone has their own horrible experiences of their commute. But if you're on the Tube in London... Um, every day in rush hour
2: it can make a person uh (laughs) quite angry especially those tubes those tubes i i i one of the when i lived in london the tubes i used to come into work later and I used to work like i try used to try and work a 10 6 just to just (laughs) do whatever i had to come into london i just do that just to avoid avoid rush hour yeah (laughs) Yeah.
0: because and 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 again it, it goes back to that thing i assumed everybody was looking around the tube wanting you know almost fantasizing about doing something, fantasizing about losing their rag with somebody. Um, You know, it, it it was these like everyday things, being on the commute or someone bumping into me or someone cutting me up in traffic. And again, just assuming, well, everyone gets angry, don't they? And I think I just came to a point, being in a serious relationship, knowing that I was very, very likely to spend the rest of my life with the woman I was with. You know, we weren't engaged at that point, but it was you know as everyone who's who's been in a serious relationship or has got married knows you know pretty early on you're like yep this is this is the person for me and i think it was that kind of um that sort of awareness that i was coming to that big moment in my life that i start you start to just assess yourself a little bit more and you start to see things in a broader in a broader sense and look at yourself in a in a broader sense and i i guess i just started to realize that this probably wasn't normal i think and and i was having I was, yeah, when I first went to the therapist, I suppose, because even finding a therapist at first, that's a weird thing to do, you know, because you can say to yourself, okay, right, maybe, yeah, you know, and I've never been somebody who would be, uh, who would object to the idea of therapy, or who would judge someone for being in therapy, I like to think of myself as somebody, you know, um, fairly liberally minded, and um, fairly progressive in that, in that sense, and um, you know, would, would have patted someone on the back to say, well, good for you, you know, you're obviously going to go and get some help. So I, I didn't have any I didn't have any issues with the idea of, oh no, what will people think or anything like that. It was more, well, what do you do? What do you actually physically do? How do you go and find a therapist? You know, you're just sort of Googling London therapists and looking around websites and thinking, well, I don't know. I don't know what I need. I don't know what I want. I don't know. Um, so I, I guess I just picked someone on a bit of a whim. Somebody, uh, he was a Scottish guy who... Um, I kind of liked what he'd said about himself in terms of what what services he offered and that type of thing. Um, and I turned up at his. Uh, I remember for my first appointment, I turned up, and I remember sort of thinking to myself, "Well, maybe I'll have a few sessions, and this guy can give me some tips on how to kind of manage my anger a little bit." You know, and I, I, I guess I envisaged this idea that it would be, you know, <laughs> I don't want to say hold, your, you know, uh, sort of hold your breath and count to ten but almost a little bit more of an advanced idea than that. You know, when you start feeling yourself getting a little bit angry, just do this or this or this or this or this. Or this. I just thought it would all be in practical terms. And the reality is that I I went and saw him for several years, um, every week. Uh, I remember I used to have to cut out of work early on a Monday afternoon to go and see him. And um, there's me saying that I wasn't bothered about, I wasn't worried about what other people would say, but um, as I'm sure a lot of other people have experienced, I wasn't going to be telling people every Monday afternoon oh, I'm cutting out of work early because I'm going to go and see my therapist. Um, the reality was I I came up with some sort of regular excuse um, because, yeah, as much as I wasn't, I didn't feel embarrassed. At the same time, I didn't want to have that conversation with people. You know, you don't want people thinking the worst of you, I suppose.
2: And when you went to the therapist, that wasn't the only thing. The anger wasn't, I I guess, the only thing that was taking you there. Were there other factors that were saying, right, I need to go get this sorted as well?
0: I think they were all tied up in the same thing. So, I think what I came to learn in therapy as well is that, you know, there's no, um, I'm the sort of person that wants to have a clear understanding of things and wants things to be, you know, easily blocked off, if you see what I mean, in the sense that that happens because of this and that happens because of this and that happens because of this. And I suppose one of the frustrations I found in therapy was realizing that some of the issues I were having, you know, they were all in a very complicated fashion, all tied up together. So, the anger was a big part of it, but that could slip into, into anxiety or sort of borderline depression quite easily in the sense that I remember the therapist because because I, I I would get upset about things regularly, um, I would feel very down on myself regularly, and the way that my therapist made me look at it was actually okay, so if you imagine you've got a dial right in the middle, so if you imagine kind of it, some sort of dial that if it if you go over to the left, that is anger and aggression. if you go over to the right that is self-doubt and fear and anxiety and actually it doesn't take very much for one to tip into the other. They're virtually, you know, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, it just, it's just the, the emotions behind them are manifesting themselves in different ways. Um, so while it might feel like, you know, when you want to curl up in the ball and you don't want to talk to anybody, um, that might feel like a million miles away from uh, ranting and raving and shouting out your car window or shouting at someone on the tube, that might feel like two completely different things. The reality is it's just a diff- different manifestation of the same feeling. Yeah, well that's that's how I came to understand it.
2: And and when you were when you went to see the therapist over a number of years and y- you know I was saw a therapist for about a year when when I was about 17 18 and when that chapter ends you can sometimes feel that something has come to an end and there's a there's a bit of vulnerability there did you feel that as well?
0: Well, yeah, I I suppose everyone's experience is different, right? I mean, I guess yeah. that's that's part of cuz everyone's you know, everyone's mental health is different and everyone's issues are different. So, I uh, I, I I found I found it quite frustrating being in therapy in the sense that I knew that there were things it was helping me with. So the number one thing it helped me with was was alcohol. Um, I I again I wouldn't say I was ever at a point of you know going to Alcoholics Anonymous or you know ever feeling like I had uh, a, a drink problem that was out of control. But I did have issues with the way I was drinking. The, I had issues with why I was drinking. I had issues with. So it wasn't even so much a quantity of, how, of, of, of what I was drinking. It was the fact that I was binging. It was, almost, it was almost like medication, you know, a way to escape a feeling. So rather than having a drink to enjoy myself, quite often I'd find myself inhaling a bottle of red wine or five pints or six pints or whatever it might be, just in order to, I suppose, get away from a feeling that was nagging away at me. And that was something I was almost doing subconsciously.
2: And it was this, was this something you do yourself, or would you do that with with groups of people? Like I know for you know sometimes you can go mm. into social settings, and that's another kettle of fish. Or was it just yeah. that you were going home and just having this this a bit, bottle of, a wine bit of both to, a yeah. bit
0: of both maybe a bit of both. And um, I think a tipping point for me was when uh, one week I went in and I'd virtually broken my hand. Um, I'd sort of cracked a bone in my hand. And I'm busy, you know, sort of uh, telling this story as if I was in a pub, you know, telling an anecdote rather than sitting there with my therapist. I'm busy telling him in this kind of light-hearted fashion about how I'd got drunk uh, with my brothers and there'd been something, I can't even remember what it was. was I couldn't get hold of my girlfriend and I was worried about her. Uh, I couldn't get hold of her on the phone and my brother had wound me up or something. And I turned around and I punched the wall and I'd cracked a bone in my hand from punching a brick wall outside a pub. And then some guy had come over to try and calm me down and I turned on him. Um, And as I was telling this story, I remember my therapist just essentially just stopping me. And it was like he'd kind of snapped. He'd had enough because it turned out that he'd been trying to get me to a point where I could understand that drink was an issue for me. Um, And uh, he'd been trying to kind of guide me there. And he basically, the way he put it was that that, he needed me to understand that there and then. and. I have never been broken down in such a brutal and kind of devastating fashion. It felt, I remember at the end of, well, not at the end of that session, within about, it, it was, it was terrifying how within a matter of minutes, um, it felt like he'd broken me into a thousand pieces and left me on the floor. That—that That is the only way I can describe it. I was, um, I was gone, completely gone. He, 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 I guess that's the skill of being a therapist and understanding who you're talking to and who your patient is and, knowing um, how to get through to them in that in that way because no one has ever got through to me on that level before or since and it completely um, shattered me and then it was a case of I mean he told me later on you know some weeks later he told me his biggest fear was that I wouldn't come back because he he kind of felt like he needed to get through to me at that point point. Um, and when he did Um, his fear was that, would I, would I just disappear? And then, and then I'd be kind of almost like left broken, I suppose. And I think what I did, I went away. Um, and I was in, I was in pieces, you know, sort of (laughs) literally metaphorically. Um, and, and I, and I did go back because I, I, and the funny thing was I didn't touch from that point onwards, I didn't touch a drop of alcohol for two years.
2: This was your turning point. Is that right?
0: I would say so. Yeah. Um, yeah. The interesting thing is that, you know, here I am talking on a, on a podcast about this. This is stuff I haven't really told anybody outside of my wife and I suppose my my closest family really, um and one or two friends. So, um it's quite odd that I'm that I'm sharing this because for so long I've told, you know, not drinking is quite difficult, you know, particularly, you know, I I suppose I'm quite a uh, I don't want to say an old fashioned sort of bloke, because that makes me sound like a twat, but it's more, (laughs) um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm, uh, you know, I'm sort of the male stereotype a little bit. I do like a drink. I like football. I like hanging around with my friends. I like playing football. I like, you know, all the sort of classic stereotypical nonsense. And so I've, I've, uh, and I, I used to work in a very, very male environment. I used to work in men's magazines. So I guess, you know, while I feel like, um, I'm quite an open minded person at the same time, I've sort of spent a lot of my life in a very macho scenario.
2: And do you think that that environment gave you a bit of a, a warped view of masculinity because yeah. you were surrounded yeah, yeah. by it so much?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, 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 don't think I was aware of it at the time. Um, and I think there's a lot of stuff that comes from before that, you know, I, Because before I moved, even before I was a working man, you know, when I was a student, I think um, I got very into that sort of macho, macho uh, lifestyle just because of the people I became friendly with because of, I mean, who knows, Uh, you know, there's a sort of myriad, myriad factors at play there. But um, yeah, I think it did. And that didn't help because that all ties up in itself. You know, you then become being angry is more, is more um, within the world of, of, I hesitate to use the phrase, but within the world of toxic masculinity being aggressive and angry is the better option than being sad and tearful and it, it does feel a little bit like i i made a choice at one point or another because maybe in my teenage years i was um i was quite a sad and tearful teenager i suppose i used to get upset about stuff um and maybe i got to a point where at some point on a, on a subconscious level i decided well actually if i'm going to be if if i'm going to be upset it's better to be upset in an angry fashion than in a tearful fashion because that's more you know that's more manly to to for want of a better phrase um so i think there was a bit of that and that that kind of that still hang around a little hang around a little bit in terms of explaining to people why i wasn't drinking you know you're talking about years and years later um here i am and i've i've decided you know for very good reason to stop drinking and i guess <sighs> I, I mean I didn't tell anyone the truth. I didn't I didn't tell anybody that it was because a therapist had made me see the light. It was you know I came up with this whole story about oh yeah I decided I needed a few weeks off because you know I'd been drinking too much and then I just felt so much better that I just carried on and blah blah blah. And you know there was an element of truth to that. Um, I wouldn't you know I I I do remember seeing the difference and feeling so much better um, both mentally and physically um, within a few weeks of stopping drinking. But um, I still was reluctant to share with people the real reason behind it
2: and did you do this around the same time that your wife was pregnant or is that would that come
0: later (laughs) do you know what that is it's funny you should say that because it came um i think my wife yeah we were actually trying for a baby and she got pregnant uh two months after i stopped drinking so um it is weird that, that that it wasn't really tied up with that i suppose maybe on some level I knew, you know, we were trying to start a family and therefore, uh, you know, again, it kind of lent itself to that idea of trying to re-examine myself and make sure I can be the best husband and father I, I, I can possibly be. You know, that's what I want to, I want to be the best husband and father I can be. So it it, it was all tied up with that to an extent, but then, yeah, I, I guess it was just a happy coincidence more than anything else. Um, and then our son came into the world and then, uh for the first 2 years of his life i didn't i didn't touch a drop of alcohol and then actually it was about i think he was he would have been about 18 months old my boy when um when i decided i'd had enough of therapy i, I found a lot of therapy really really frustrating um a lot of it very very positive but constantly doubting the therapist there there's always that feeling of cuz he was trying to get quite deep into the root causes behind um you know, my negative feelings and my anger and my frustration and all those things. And I I was reluctant to do that. And he kept trying to push me and I kept pushing back. And we fell out one or two times actually, which I think is probably quite normal. Um, you know, because I, I was quite reluctant to believe everything he said. You think, well, you're, okay, you're a therapist and you know what you're doing, but how is it that you are the, you, you know everything about me? You can't know everything about me and you can't be right about everything because that's just not physically possible. So. I found it quite uncomfortable at times just kind of sitting there and listening to him as if he was the oracle. Um, and I would push back on things. And I'd say, no, I don't agree with that. Um, and we'd get into a debate about things quite regularly. So I kind of got to a point where I thought, okay, that's enough for me now. Um, and I, the way I, and it was weird. It took weeks and weeks for me to extricate myself from therapy. I felt stuck. Um, and there would be times where I'd try and have that conversation with him and he'd convince me to stay. Um, and it got quite uncomfortable. I got quite. I was going back, kind of really reluctantly. I was kind of resenting paying the money for it. It got to that stage where I was thinking, "This is. I don't want to do this. Why am I here? I could just stop coming." Um, and it did take a long time. And I uh, finally, we really had it out in you know not not in a not in a confrontational way, but I kind of laid it all out on the line. And he said, "Okay, look, if you think you're ready, then you're ready." And he he was very very kind and very warm and uh, very open to say that anytime you need me, you, you're always welcome back. Um, and I, I remember getting very emotional when I left, which really surprised me because I thought I was really happy to leave. And then I got really emotional as I, I left for the last time. Um, and then, yeah. And then fast forward a few months and I was back to having the odd drink, but the, the difference is I think with, uh, when I see I, I, that it sounds really obvious, right? So I, my therapist made me quit drinking. I then stopped going to my therapist and I started drinking again. The, the reality is that I drink in a completely different way to the way I used to drink.
2: And what and what's, the, and what's that?
0: Uh, in a more considered and aware fashion. I mean, I think I, I, used to, I used to be that guy that I would drink until I fell asleep. So like I'd be out at three in the morning and I'd just drink until I fell asleep. Um, or I'd be at home and, you know, if I open a bottle of wine on a Tuesday night, that bottle of wine will be finished in an hour. Um, now I might have the odd glass of wine and I'll put the bottle of wine back up on the shelf. Or if I go out with my mates, I'll go out and have a couple of pints and then I'll go home. Um, it's... I think there's just there's just an awareness there that i know, I know that i can't that I don't want to go back to to using kind of alcohol as a as a medication if you see what i mean
2: It's so true because I know it, in my life i I've never actually spoken about this before but in my life I lost someone really close to me through alcohol and they drank themselves into a state where actually the doctor said you haven't got long to live because you've actually just completely ruined your insides and and she was gone within the year and you know that is awful and and but the difference not not the difference in these two cases but you know she never had that access to a therapist and and like you've been so lucky that you've been able to to do that do you think that's maybe something that you've been fortunate to have that you've been able to have that
0: yeah, yeah i would say so i, I again I, I feel a little bit reluctant to to compare my situation to to, to you know your family member in a sense that i, I never got, I, I don't think i'd ever got to that point where i was consuming alcohol uh like quantities of alcohol that would have affected my physical health i remember i did have to go i remember going for a liver scan once because there were some blood tests that suggested my liver was a bit fatty and being massively relieved when <laughs> they were like no no your liver's okay Um, because, uh, you know, so I, I don't think I ever got to that stage in terms of quantities. I think it was more just the, the, the reasons behind the drinking, that type of thing. But yeah, I think having that aware, the one thing I would say is that it's given me a huge amount of awareness. Part of the frustration I have with myself, I suppose, is that I am, I feel very, very aware of how my mind works. I feel very, very aware of what my problems are. I still don't necessarily feel. 100% confident in my ability to control them and I think that's part of the really difficult journey that a lot of people go on with their mental health is that you you, the the first big stage and it is a big big step is getting that awareness of where your problems are what they are um, and just being being aware of them but learning then to, to cope with them to deal with them to control them that is a whole different step and I and I don't feel I've necessarily taken that step um so awareness is one part of the journey but the the control and and the the management of it is is a different one entirely.
2: Not to segue it too much farther away from what we been talking about, but obviously a huge part, which I'm guessing is impacted negatively, but mostly and more moreover positively is becoming a parent and I guess in some ways you you go right okay I can't keep drinking I can't keep being angry blah 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 because I've got to set an example for my kids do you think that's right
0: yeah yeah that is right. well that's that's certainly how you start out but then the difficulty is um is is the guilt you can feel uh you know it, it used to be if I if I lost my rag about something or if I got angry or you know I did something stupid um I would I'd feel really, I'd, I'd beat myself up and I'd get that kind of sense of self-loathing and that, that's always been there. The problem is <clears throat> once you have kids, if you do that, if you do something stupid, if you lose your temper, if you do, you know, you do something daft, um, you're then, you, that self-loathing is still there but it's magnified massively because you then start worrying what example am I setting to my children? And the fact is that as a dad, as a, as a parent, and you know, mums, mums are exactly the same, you will lose your temper. It is, it is physically, I, I believe it's physically impossible to have children. You know, I've got a two-year-old boy at home and a, a second one on the way any day now. And anyone who's had a two-year-old kid will tell you, if, it, you know, if you're telling me you're not going to lose your temper and get frustrated with a two-year-old kid, then there's something wrong with you.
2: I should, we should just say, just not to cut you off, that your wife is imminently... Um, in, um gonna have a baby well, is that right is yeah. that right so, when,
0: I, when i said any day now i'm not i'm not joking as in as we're sitting here recording this um we have a planned c-section in two days time <laughs> so um I, while i have my phone on silent uh, it's still here because <laughs> she might go into labor at any stage
2: by the time this goes out to our audience then you will actually be a second father which is a i will mad. have two
0: kids which is slightly terrifying not least because I know I'm going to be exhausted and I know, uh, that is not going to help my mental health. Everyone knows that, you know, if you, if you have any type of mental health issues, you know, exhaustion is not going to, it's not going to, um, help, uh, help you manage them. So it is very, and it's very difficult when you, when you have a kid who's screaming at you, when you have a kid who's losing, you know, losing his marbles and got having a tantrum or whatever. Um, it's very difficult to keep yourself on a straight and narrow and to keep your composure and keep calm. And, you know, it. You can want to do that, and I want to do that every time. Every time my son is, is having a tantrum, I am desperately trying to stay calm. I'm desperately trying to maintain my composure, set a good example, talk him through it, all the things that I've read about, all the things I know, all the things I want to be as a father. And then somehow something – and it, I, I don't even feel it coming. It's just like, it's like a, a switch is flicked, and so I go from zero to 100, and all of a sudden I'm raising my voice and I've lost my temper. And you feel like, well, I've lost the battle there, haven't I? I've lost the battle, I've lost the battle with myself, and I've lost the battle in terms of setting the example for him that I want to set. And so you get and you, you can get into a bit of a downward spiral because you start feeling really disappointed with yourself and you start thinking, God, I'm not being the dad I want to be, and all these things. Um and even as I hear myself saying this, I can hear my own brothers who say this to me all the time stop being so bloody hard on yourself, stop beating yourself up because you know, it is it is part of parenting, and I think everybody goes through it. And I think the you know that that is part of the issue. Many parents, like me, are way too hard on themselves, and you have to you have to try and learn to give yourself a bit of a break.
2: I mean, I'm not a parent here, so I am slightly out of my depth, but I do see those around me and my family who are parents that you know there is there is a sense of guilt about mm. being a parent. I I guess is that right about you know you. Oh God, gotcha. yeah. You know,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, very, the very first episode we did of First Time Dads, just, you know, to give myself another, another big, big old plug another here plug. in the middle. Of, <laughs> another plug right in the middle of another podcast. <laughs> uh, but the very, the very first episode we did was myself and Steve, who's uh, my, my co-host on the, on the show. Um, it, we literally just sat in a room and we started talking. And the, the end result, uh, because at this point we both had uh, very young children, and the end result was us talking. I think we called the episode Dad dad guilt dad envy dad rage and all the other bad dad feelings and the whole thing became about well no one tells you that you're going to have all these negative emotions when you when you're about to have a kid everybody tells you about how much you love you're going to love the kid and that is 100% true right there there is an over you know you you do you, it it's it's a it's a love for another human being like you will never have with anyone else um that's that's a fact but at the same time within that and particularly in the early days when you're a dad and you feel like a bit of a spare part because you know particularly if your partner is breastfeeding which is often the case um and you do really feel like what exactly is my role here what am i doing here and all of a sudden you can you you will you will feel anger at your child but while your child's screaming at you in the middle of the night and has been for an hour you will of course feel frustration and irritation you will feel a bit of envy towards potentially towards your wife or partner if she is breastfeeding and she has that connection, and you're looking at it thinking, "How do I get in on this? How can I have a connection with my child like that?" Um, and you'll feel that guilt at, at having the negative feelings. So, it's a it's a very it's a very surprising thing because no one talks about it, and until you're in it and you suddenly and that those when those sort of first wave of those emotions, those not so positive emotions hit you, you think, "You think, good lord, am I supposed to feel like this about my baby? I thought this was all going to be, you know." rainbows and unicorns and uh and you know angels flying around my head and all the rest of it um because that's the nature of being a parent is it's it's all or nothing you are either and I, I realize that now you know the best part of two and a half years in that as with most things with parenting it is all or nothing you are either dealing with the most lovely beautiful cutest sweetest little person in the world and you, you know your heart's full of joy or you're thinking my god i could throw you out of a window right now and that that's, that's literally it it's one or the other
2: And I'm not a parent at all, but I'm getting anxiety and my heart, my palms are literally sweating thinking about children. I guess that's a a normal feeling as well from (laughs) from anyone who doesn't or does have a child. Because I know it's going to be part of my life. I want it to be part Mm. of uh, my life Mm. Sunday, you know, and and I'm I'm sure that's for most people the same thing. So, you know, I I know you're not an expert, but how do you Mm. suggest going about these day to day managements of anxiety for having a, a for being a first time dad?
0: The, the thing we say on the, on the podcast quite a lot is, um, you know, good enough is good enough. Like if, if you can, I read something in a book actually um, by Sarah Ockwell-Smith, who's one of the um, parenting experts we've, we've had on the podcast in the, in the past. And she's written a book about having a second child, um, which is, of course, very relevant to me. And she basically puts it like, if you can get through each day and everyone is kind of healthy and has survived the day, if, basically, if you can get through the day and no one's died, everything is fine. And that, uh, and that is basically the fundamental. And honestly, it, sound, it sounds flippant, but that's the reality, really, when it comes to parenting, particularly when you've got multiple kids, um, is, you know, you have to give yourself a break. We have so much, women in particular, but men as well, to an extent, have so much pressure on them as parents, not least because you go on Instagram, you go on Facebook, and you see nothing but perfect, happy families. And actually, the reality is that what you're looking at there is not, the, is not their average experience. Somebody only puts a picture up on Instagram or Facebook of family life when it's a positive reflection of their family life, right? When everyone's happy and smiling and they're all on holiday and they're on the beach and all smiling at the camera or their baby's done something really cute and here's a little 10-second clip of him gurgling and blah, 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 all that. What they're not going to show you is when you know, the husband and wife are screaming at each other at three in the morning <laughs> because the baby's lost it. So you, you have to constantly have that in the back of your mind, that what you're seeing around you, whether it be on TV, on social media, whatever, you're not seeing real life. And it's very, very hard as a parent to not compare yourself to other parents. It's nearly impossible. And you have to, you have to keep thinking to yourself, well, whatever I'm going through, they'll be going through it too. You're just not seeing it, and and therefore you have to give yourself a break because if you put all that pressure on yourself, you will break, and it will and it will become too much.
2: Maybe that's something you should do while you're on paternity. Just do sort of like a, <laughs> a real. This is the this is the other side of the coin, and it might do actually really well. I don't know if that's that's maybe a bit too much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, to be honest, we've done a fair bit of that on the podcast. I mean, I have this thing now. I I, I said to some um, some mates of mine recently. I, I, don't, I don't want to hear any positive stories about people's children. What happens when by the time you've got a two-year-old kid? I, I, you meet up with other people, other parents. All you want to hear is how bad their kid is. Because all I want to do is hear, so your kid's doing this too. So I will start listing the things that my kid's doing uh, that, that are driving me up the wall. And all I want to hear from them is, oh, yeah, yeah, so-and-so does that too. And you think, right, great, fantastic. Because the worst feeling is that everyone else is having a weight of a time and you're, you're making a mess of your child's life and raising your child. All you want to hear is everyone else is in the same boat.
2: That's I it. suppose it gives you, in your sense, your own form of anxiety relief if you can have those types of conversations as well. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. And it all comes back to the same thing. It all comes back to the idea of communication. You know, I mean, you could say this, and I'm sure you guys have said this in, in many other the, the episodes you've recorded, communication is such a huge part, right? Whether it be communicating with a therapist or communicating with your partner or communicating with your family or you know, the the ability to talk about issues that you're facing and things you're feeling, um, you know, that is that is the easiest and quickest way to to resolving them. I, I firmly believe that. And it's absolutely the case with parenting. And that's why things like NCT groups, you know, that people always laugh about. I remember my li- my wife saying when we were going to NCT, which if for those who don't know, is the sort of you do these antenatal sessions where an expert shows you how to bathe a baby and what to expect if you're having a C section and what breastfeeding's like and all those things. And people pay a couple hundred quid to go along to these courses. And as my wife pointed out before we had her first son, you're not, you're not paying for the information. What you're paying for is middle-class friend recruitment. That's basically it. Because all <laughs> people do those things for is to have people to talk to afterwards. So you go along and yeah, the information's all useful and blah, blah, blah. But basically you forget it all straight away. What you come out with it at the end is a WhatsApp group of people who are having kids around the same time. And then you have that ability to communicate and send a WhatsApp message at two in the morning saying, Is anyone else awake or whatever? Um so it's yeah, it's uh that that's you know, and that's that's the that's what you need. You need that ability, that communication group, um, to kind of take the take the weight off a little bit.
2: Well Rich, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. I can literally, I think we're going to have to get you on again because uh, it's a good thing you've got your own podcast series because I feel like I can just listen <laughs> to you for hours and hours. You've got one of those great voices that I could just listen to.
0: <laughs> well, that's very kind. Don't, t- don't tell my wife that, for God's sake. She tells me I talk too much anyway.
2: <laughs> just before we go, that is one question I do mm. want to ask you. Something which gives me anxiety as well about children and parenthoods and things like that is leave for men as well and mm. i i believe your other co-host steve has just come back from shared parental leave is that right
0: he has yeah yeah he took uh, he took 3 months um to for well for the birth of both his children she's got two kids um and he he took 3 months on both occasions
2: so i've never heard of i've never i've never known that to happen maybe it's just me I've, I've, what is that about
0: it's still it's still a relatively new um initiative i think it went into law a few years ago um we actually spoke to on first time dads. We spoke to Joe Swinson, who's the Lib Dem politician who actually got it passed th- through Parliament. The the whole concept, um, and it just means that you can actually split the, the 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 parental leave. You know, traditionally, of course, the woman is always the one, the mother is always the one who takes all all the leave. Um, but now, actually, there's there's a, a government scheme there, which means that you can take. So, for instance, in Steve's case, I think his wife had six months uh of maternity leave and then went back to work and steve took three so they had their nine months parental leave but they split it up um and it just it it, it, it's um it's something i think that every dad i would like to think would want to do um i don't think that's always the case i think there's plenty of dads who are quite happy going to work (laughs) to be honest rather than getting stuck in with the kids at home but um it's yeah I, i think it makes a big big difference going forward you know steve talks very positively about the connection he's got with his with his kids his two kids um, off the back of that, um, and I can certainly see that, and I, I would have loved to have done that. But of course, the difficulty is that financially and economically, it's not always possible for everybody, and it, it that's, wouldn't That's it wouldn't the other thing,
2: isn't it? The financial side. Exactly,
0: of it. that's it. And it, it wouldn't, you know, for for very, you know, for very obvious reasons, it wouldn't necessarily work with my wife and I. I, I. I earn more money than my wife does, and so if I'd have been off, and we'd have, we'd have been having to live off her salary, that would have been really difficult. So, it's um, yeah, it's one of those situations where, in theory, I think it's it's a great it's a great idea but i think there's still more needs to be done to make it workable and um and and and, you know make it easier for people to do it
2: well thank you so much for joining us again and um i would love to have you back on um again once you're back i hope
0: (laughs) thanks michael you know i'm i hope um i hope anyone who's listening who's going through something similar might might take something out of it
1: We all have mental health and it's just as important as physical health. No Really, I'm Fine shares real stories and experiences, but we aren't experts and this podcast is not an alternative to getting official medical advice. If your mental or emotional state quickly dips or you're worried about someone you know, help and support is out there. Talk to your GP or call us Samaritans on 0800 58 For advice on how to help a friend or loved one, visit Rethink.org. Thanks for checking out the show. I hope you join us on the journey as we explore mental health. You can follow us on Twitter at I'm Fine Podcast underscore.
2: Where we'll have loads more information and some sneak peeks for future episodes.